In the future, roving bands of comic book podcasts will savage the wasteland, once known as the internet. One podcast, the Grawlix Podcast, may not be the biggest, may not be the funniest, may not be the most well-spoken. Wait, what was my point again? Oh yes, the Grawlix Podcast. Listen to it at GrawlixPodcast.com. That's G-R-A-W-L-I-X Podcast.com. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bullspit. Welcome, Moose Pack, to an all-new episode of Bullspit with Moose. You know, this is a very mysterious episode. My guest today is, you know, it's our first author who has an imagination set in sci-fi and dystopian landscapes. His imagination has laid the groundwork for knockout redheads, rabbits who can't hold their alcohol, and the happiest place on Earth. And I'm not talking about Disneyland. So please welcome... Author Gary K. Wolf. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Happy to be here. I, I have been called many things in my writing career, but never dystopian. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's something I should aim for from now on, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going through like I've I'm about halfway through the road to Toontown. Mm-hmm. And you know, oh yeah, that yeah, your I, selection of short of- stories, and it's very much like dystopian futures and. Sure. Stuff like that, and it's you have one hell of an imagination. I mean, well, well thanks. I, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I forget about my early science fiction stuff. My, I started out as a science fiction writer back in San Francisco in the mid seventies, and of course, if uh, I, I really never, never expected to be even published, uh, let alone you know have multiple novels and movies. Uh, but when I was writing, when I started writing, uh, I kind of wrote what what I was reading, and I kind of wrote what everybody else was writing. And yeah, a lot of that was uh, very bleak, very, uh, as you say, dystopian. And eventually I came around to writing science fiction stuff that turned out to be funny. And that was kind of my sweet spot. I was just having a conversation with my editor yesterday about a new book I'm writing, a new novel. And I, I asked him, I said, is this novel funny? Because it's a Toontown, it's a new Toontown novel, it's about Jessica Rabbit. And I said, is this novel funny? And he said, yeah, it's hilarious, why, why would you ask that? And I, I told him that I do not intentionally write funny stuff. I, I write, to me, serious stuff. And people come to me and say, wow, you know, you're the great American humorist. Those Roger Rabbit novels are just just knee-slappingly funny. I, I'm amazed because I wrote them to be serious works of literary fiction. So, But I got I to gotta take what I'm given and be happy with, uh, with uh, the way people interpret it. Well, and we'll get into it a little bit more later here in a little bit, but, you know, who censored Roger Rabbit, you wrote in a very classic noir style, mm-hmm. and it reads very much like, you know, the Maltese Falcon and stylistic writing, and it's phenomenal, just just the way it plays out. With that one particularly, I had some, some great loves when I, was, when I was a kid. I was a big reader, and I had some great loves. Uh, one of my loves was science fiction. Of course, one of them was comic books and cartoons. Uh, but my other big love uh, was, and always has been, and, and still is, is hard-boiled noir fiction and uh, some noir movies. Uh, I, I got that from my dad because uh, he uh, he wasn't a big reader. Uh, but my uh, my parents were children of the Depression. And uh, my dad had to drop out of school in the third grade to go to work. Uh, so he was not a big reader. But what he did read were um, true crime magazines of the era. And this was um, 40s and 50s, 1940s, 1950s. And in those days, there were photographers who would go around to crime scenes 
and take pictures of crime scenes. And, and by crime scenes, I mean I mean places where there have been murders or or gangland style massacres. Actual like, crime scenes. Yeah, actual physical crime scenes with the body still in place. And photographers would go around and take pictures of these. And then they would give them to a writer or they would write them up themselves and, and these pictures would be published in true crime magazines. And if you ever saw the movie Road to Perdition with Tom Hanks, uh, uh, Jude Law plays one of these photographers. That's what he does. And, and my, my father used to read these. And uh, my mother, good mother that she was, she she always told me, you know, if you, know, if you want to get out of this town, I, I, I was reared in a small farm town in Illinois. 1,400 people, and my dad ran the pool hall there, and my, my mother always told me, she said, you know, if you if you want to get out of this town, and you don't want to wind up living here for the rest of your life and running your dad's pool hall, and she said, one thing you can do to make that happen is to read. Uh, but, you know, good mother that she was, she didn't put any restriction on what I read, so I read uh, comic books where everybody else read, and I read my dad's true crime magazines. You know, luckily, I graduated to a better class of Crime fiction, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, the real classic uh, giants. And I always loved that noir fiction. So uh, I, when I was doing Censored, uh, I wanted to incorporate noir fiction and my other love, which was comic books and comic strips. Uh, not easily done. It took me a long, long time to figure out how to do that and make it work. And if you read Who Censored, and I think everybody in the world should read Who Censored Roger Rabbit. You know? I agree, especially if you've watched the movie, go back yeah. and read the book. If you read it, uh, you can read it on two levels. You can read it as a as a noir novel, a, a hard-boiled private eye novel, and it works. Or you can read it as a kind of a semi-fantasy, cartoony novel, and it works there, too. It was. I thought it was pretty successful. Well, see, and I agree. One of the things you know I've always liked about the uh, noir style is that you know it's the pacing and the Sam Spade styles of just. For me, it's always the pacing in those books, where it's like it's a medium pace, beginning to end. There's not really a lull. Yeah. I mean, you're hit from the beginning, and you just keep going. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, you finish the book. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's my judge judgment of a of a good book. You, you know, you start it, and all of a sudden, uh, it's finished. And when you're reading it, you would rather be reading it than doing anything else. Yeah. yeah. When you can't put something down, that that truly is the benchmark. Yeah, I agree absolutely. So when you sit down to write something, what is your like? What process do you go through? Oh, it varies. I'm not a fast writer, so generally we'll just kind of cogitate for a while and try to come up with an idea. And and it, it takes me about a year to write a book, sometimes longer. I mean, I think Roger Rabbit, the first one censored, I think took uh, three years. And, and so I have to have an idea that is intriguing enough to me to hold my interest for three years. Otherwise, I'm going to get bored and, and either turn out a crappy novel or just shelve it and go on to something else that doesn't bore me. So I have to find an idea that really intrigues me. With Censored and, and with Roger Rabbit and the Toontown experience, that came when I was I was watching uh, Saturday morning cartoons, and I was I was looking for something that I could use to interrelate comic books and cartoons and noir fiction. Uh, and I was watching Saturday morning cartoons, and um, I, I hated the cartoons. They were really simplistic and badly drawn, but the commercials were sensational because there were cartoon characters. There was the Trix Rabbit, Captain Crunch, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, um, Tony the Tiger. These were cartoon characters talking to real kids, and nobody seemed to think that was odd. And I, I, I thought to myself, wow, you know, what a great premise that would be for a novel. What if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of a world would that be? So I spent a year just researching cartoons and comic strips to see what they did in cartoons and comic strips that humans couldn't do. And then I, I came up with a mystery that would only work in a cartoon universe and uh, put the two together and spent another year writing the novel. I, I, am, I am as happy as I think I will ever be 
when I'm just sitting here in my office writing something that truly engrosses me, like like Roger Rabbit and Toon Town engross me. The problem with it is that in order to write Toon Town, in order to write that kind of fiction, I have to go there in my mind, and, and I actually have to go there. So I have to go into Toontown and, and see what would happen if a cartoon character walks into a human bar. I mean, can a cartoon character have a human drink? Well, I think you saw the movie, what happens? But what happens if a human goes into a cartoon bar? Well, can he drink Toontonic? And what's going to happen to him? And, uh, I had to think about all of that stuff every day when I'm writing. Think about it, think about it. And it's exhausting. Uh, some, some days I wind up it's, it's a physical exhaustion. Uh, I wind up just so tired that I can't do anything else. And then the next day I come back and, and do it all again. But for me, it's fun. It's, it's, the most, it's the most fun I could possibly have. And I think what people react to in my writing is I think that the enjoyment that I'm having writing it comes through in the reading of it. I think that people respond to that. So do you sit down and do like an outline first, or do you just sit down and start writing and see what comes sometimes, out? Sometimes. Sometimes. Because it varies book to book. Uh, I generally know how the book begins, and I generally know how the book ends. Um, and everything in between, depending on the book, uh, sometimes I go through and outline it, start to finish, so that I know every single thing that's going to happen through the whole book. There's the book I'm doing now, the, the new Jessica Rabbit novel, uh, that is completely outlined, start to finish. I know exactly how that book is going to play out, how it's going to work chapter to chapter. I, I even know a lot of the dialogue. Censored, I kind of knew the beginning, I kind of knew the end, and uh, sort of made it up as I went along. Uh, but the problem with that kind of an approach is that you have to go back, after you've done it, you then have to go back to the beginning and make sure everything is consistent because you, you don't have an outline. And, you know, I've, I've done it that way and gone back and find that I've found that I've changed characters' names halfway through and wasn't even aware of it. You know, a character that was called Jim at the beginning is called John uh, halfway through. And sometimes back to Jim. So you have to go through it and make it consistent. And that takes time. It, it all takes time. It's a function of time. Um, doing an outline is time consuming. And it's very difficult because you, you have to really focus on the story and how the story fits together. Uh, but in the end, it winds up saving you time because uh, there's less rewrite to do when, you, when you've done the whole novel. You can go through and be fairly certain that everything's going to be consistent. And, and in a Toontown novel, that's the important thing. Everything has to be consistent. If there's something inconsistent in the book, something that couldn't possibly happen in a universe where humans and toons coexist, it, the readers, readers are immediately going to lock on that, and you're going to lose all your credibility. So everything has to be consistent, and that's, that's, a, that's a process, and it's a problem. Well, you know, in the vein of consistency, famously, Stan Lee uh, had that issue with the Hulk. Mm -hmm. Bruce Banner's name was originally David, mm -hmm. and it you yeah. know got changed to Bruce, and <laughs> yeah. fans, you know, fans called him out on it. He's like, "Oh, well, his name was David Bruce Banner." <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> so. Stanley was God, and uh, he could do whatever he wanted. But uh, I am I am a lesser I am a lesser God, and I have to be a little more careful <laughs> because uh, you know, especially when you're starting out. And you know, I'm starting out. I'm writing Roger Rabbit, and I'm a pretty well known science fiction writer in my own little universe. I, you know, I've been nominated for some awards, but. I certainly wasn't Isaac Asimov, and I you know, certainly wasn't Robert Heinlein. I was just a, you know, kind of a mediocre science fiction writer. And you you never expect that when you're writing at that level that in 30 years people are still going to be reading your books, and and people are going to be writing scholarly scholarly treatises about them, and people are going to be going through them page by page, line by line looking for hidden meanings and inconsistencies. You can't conceive of that. And yet now that is happening. 
And, you know, people will come to me and say, oh, Jesus, who censored Roger Rabbit? What was the underlying subtext of da 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 And I, I am completely flabbergasted by that because there was none, at least none that I was aware of. There, there probably was because you're subtext and everything. But again, I, I write to amuse myself. I write to make myself happy. And whatever subtext is there or is not there uh, is unintentional. I have to say, of the ones I've read, my favorite sci-fi dystopian story that you've written is Love Story. Oh, that was my first. That was my first. First thing I ever wrote. Um, and um, I, I wrote it. It took me a year to write that. I think it's like 12 or 15 pages long. I think it took me a year. And I sent it off to a science fiction magazine, Worlds uh, of Tomorrow, and I didn't hear anything. I was living in San Francisco. I didn't hear anything. And I, I in those days, I mean, I was, I had never published anything. Uh, and, I mean, this was really the first story I'd ever written completely through. And I, I didn't know how the publishing business worked. I figured, well, you know, it went into a, went into a trash can someplace and I'm never going to get it back, even though I sent them a stamp to self-addressed temple. I'm never going to get it back. And eight months went by. I had never heard anything. And I had started writing something else. And all of a sudden, I get a telegram from Worlds of Tomorrow, a telegram. And they said, hey, you know, we want to publish your, publish your short story in the next issue. And if that's okay with you, we'll give you $100. And, uh, you know, send us a telegram back. Collect if you if you agree. And I, you know, 100 bucks to 12 pages, eight months' work. I figure I made like three cents a, a word for it. But it's a start. It, it was... <laughs> But it was the it was the seminal uh, sale of my life because that validated the fact that I was a professional writer. I had actually sold something that was going to be in a magazine. So you know, I, this is San Francisco in the uh, San Francisco in the '60s, right? So I got my hundred bucks, and I said, "Well, now I am a professional writer. I got to go dress like a professional writer." So I went down to uh, the big department store, which was I Magnet. So I bought myself a tweed jacket with leather sleeves, and I bought myself a, uh, a black turtleneck sweater. Uh, and, and I went full author, and I went to a place called the North South Musical Instrument Company, which didn't make musical instruments, but they made custom-made leather pants. And I got myself a custom-made pair of leather pants. Uh, <laughs> I thought this is what this is what a writer looks like in San Francisco in the '60s, and uh, I am proud to say that I can still wear those leather pants. Uh, although, again, this being the '60s, they they are wide bell bottoms, and the bottoms of those pants are like 18 inches wide. I think they used a whole cow on the on that pair of pants. I can honestly say, I was legitimately sad at the end of that story and it was a short story I shouldn't have gone through that range of emotions on a short story but like and I don't want to give it away because I don't know how many people have read it and it's really hard because uh, uh, yeah it's like oh man it, it was so good like you think it's just this oh it's it's this very happy 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 story and then twist yeah yeah you know uh, it's interesting the other interesting the sidelight on that uh, is the problem that I have had with um, the names of stories. That one was called Love Story. And, of course, that came out just about the same time that uh, the Ryan O'Neill, uh, Ali McGraw movie Love Story came out. And the two are not related in the slightest, no. but they have the same title. And uh, so I got dinged for you know doing a ripoff. Which, you know, if you read the story, there's absolutely no relationship whatsoever. Same thing happened, uh, with my first novel, which is called Killer Bowl. And, uh, Killer Bowl is a, is a true dystopian <laughs> novel about, uh, sports. Uh, I wrote it in 1976 and set it in 2010, 2011. Um, uh, and in that novel, I predicted things like the, WWF, uh, you know, cage fighting, and I predicted the cell phone and internet and uh, all kinds of stuff. But th that novel is about football played as a uh, blood sport. They play football 
on the city streets and I, I made up all the rules and um, um, all the game, all the games are, and the schedules and everything. I mean, it's really, really a complete novel. And um, it was incredible. So I got a, I got a deal with Playboy magazine to serialize it in Playboy. Between the time that I wrote it and the time that it came out, some movie company bought a short story that had appeared in Esquire called Rollerball, right? It was called the Rollerball Murders, but they changed it to Rollerball, and they made a terrible movie out of it. Yeah, they did. And so the movie actually wound up coming out before my book, even though the book had been written before the short story in Esquire. And so, again, I got dinged for uh, ripping off Rollerball. Uh, my main concern when I was writing Roger Rabbit, because of the things that had happened to me in the past, you know, with Love Story and Terrible Rollerball, when I got the idea for a world where cartoon characters were real, I I thought to myself, this is such an obvious idea. I mean, th- this is obvious. I was terrified during the, the three years that it took me to write it that somebody else was going to come up with the idea and beat me to it and come out with a a book first where cartoon characters and humans coexist. Uh, luckily, nobody did. And luckily, nobody has since, but it was a big problem for me. Well, I believe it. At that point, that'd be three strikes for you. That, <laughs> well, that, yeah. That'd be a hell of a I, I think in the writing game, I think you get more than three. You probably get four, maybe. Well, no, I know, I know. But as far as ego and self-confidence go, that'd be a hell of oh, a blow. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I need better need better names. These <laughs> names that nobody's going to come out like. What, what did uh, Elton Musk name his kid? Some undecipherable thing, or uh, you know, Prince naming himself uh, some kind of symbol. I got to start naming my stories with symbols and undecipherable things that nobody else can copy. Just bring back Nordic runes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Before we get into uh, censored. Do you have any uh, tips and advice for people who want to get into the writing game or the aspiring author to be? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, people ask me this all the time. They say, hey, geez, I got this great idea for a book. Uh, what should I do? Well, I give them all the same advice. You know, you sit down and start writing it. And it's amazing how few people actually do that. I, of all the people I've ever told about it, only one woman has ever actually sat down and written the novel that she said was was burning inside her and she wrote it, it was a horror novel and she did get it published. It, it takes a lot of self-discipline is the one thing I would say to aspiring writers it, it's self-discipline. If you sit down every single day every single day, day in, day out every day, seven days a week, and write a page in 364 days you got an novel, right? Now maybe it's a crap novel, then you start going through it like I do and go through it and start revising it and making it better and making it better. And in 672 days, you, you got a pretty good novel. It's that first day, that first page. Uh, Ernest Hemingway used to say, uh, you know, sitting there looking at, you know, sitting at this typewriter looking at a blank page, sitting looking at the, the bull that is the blank page. That's the hardest part because you put the first word down and already you've taken yourself in a direction. You just got to keep going. Any aspiring writer, sit down, do a page a day, page a day, page a day. Just keep doing it, and eventually you will have a novel. And I got to—I'll I, be honest with you. You know, I sit down, I sit down every day, and my goal is to write a page a day. That's my goal. The first draft of any novel I produce is absolute crap. It's just crap. It's probably 80% crap, but it's 20% pretty good stuff. So I go back through and I rewrite it, rewrite it, and I make it uh, so that it's 40% pretty good stuff, only 60% crap. And I keep doing it and keep doing it until hopefully it's 100% pretty good stuff. And that's that's what writing is. Uh, somebody, it wasn't me, which it was, I think it was Kurt Vonnegut or somebody said writing isn't writing, it's rewriting. Uh, and that's exactly true. You you know the, the the myth is that you sit down with a typewriter and you turn out this perfect first draft, first go around, and you send it off and it gets published. But that's that's not true. Writing is a lot of hard work and it's a lot of rewriting and it's criticizing yourself, which a lot of people can't do. Some people aren't comfortable doing that. I think writing is a is a is a hard, hard, tedious job. And uh, as I say, when I do it, when I write, uh, at the end of the day, 
I'm physically exhausted. Physically exhausted. Sometimes I have a headache because I've been thinking, and it's just so exhausting for me. But that would be my that would be my my advice to any writer. Uh, you know, just start writing and write the book, or write the short story, or write the poem, or write whatever it is you want to write. I think it's time we uh, head down the rabbit hole, as it were. Sure. <laughs> Always, always happy to pay another visit to Toontown. <laughs> Who censored Roger Rabbit? A mystery. Um, reading the book, why was it who censored and not like who whacked or uh, you know who rubbed out? Because you know, my third novel was who whacked Roger Rabbit, but yeah. um, uh, it was who censored because the conceit of the book uh, in the in the censored Roger Rabbit. The characters are not characters who star in cartoons. They are characters who star in comic strips and comic books. And so they, they, rather than being photographed as moving actors, they are photographed statically uh, for comic books and comic strips. That censored was a play on um, the commission. I can't remember the name of the commission uh, that met when I was a kid. And uh, it was a Senate commission on uh, violence in comic books and how violence in comic books was rotting children's brains and ruining the youth of America. And um, they basically came up with a comic code that you there were certain things that you could no longer show in comic books. And that, that was the death of some of my favorite comics, like E.C., um, who used to have things like the Crypt Keeper. And, I mean, he used to show horrible, gory, really, stuff, but it was a comic book. And, uh, yeah, it's probably scared to live in, live in crap out of me, but it was just comic violence, and I understood that. But once the Senate got involved, they basically censored comic books. And, uh, you know, that's when you started seeing the rise of kind of wholesome comic books like Archie and uh, the Disney comic. But I wanted to, wanted to have a subtle little dig on the censorship aspect of comic books. And so it was censored when, uh, when we made the movie, because the movie was, um, you know, they were film stars. Um, they used framed instead of censored. They used framed instead of censored for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, because of the artistic uh, angle on it, because of the movie connotation, frame by frame, and also they were afraid that if they if they kept the censored title, that people who were going to go to the movie might think um, it was a uh, a dirty movie, that it was an R or X rated movie because of censored. It's not title. dirty. It's just drawn that way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I I actually. Looking looking back on it, I yes, I'm happy with the title. I, I would never ever change it, but um, I'm happy with the frame title too. If uh, if I were going to do it all over again from scratch and uh, could have thought about who framed Roger Rabbit, I would. That's what that's the title I would have used. I think it's a it's a really a pretty good title. Now, listeners, before we get too far into this book, if you haven't read this book. Go read the book. <laughs> and then come back and listen to what I'm going to say about it. <laughs> the link will be available in the episode description. The link to the Audible version will be available in the episode description. There will be no reason not to have read this book. <laughs> read the book. <laughs> your life will be better for it. I promise. <laughs> you're, like, you're like my greatest critic ever. <laughs> this is, that's wonderful. <laughs> Roger Rabbit has always been a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to lie, I, I, I didn't know you existed. You know, I had no idea this book existed. I was doing some digging on Roger Rabbit. And again, I was going deeper down the rabbit hole. And your name in this book came up. And it was, well, what is this? You know, so I started researching into the book and researching into you. And that, you know, eventually led me to, you know, connecting with you on Facebook, which led us to here. You know, I got to say, ever since I picked up this book, I have told everybody who I know is a fan of the movie to read this book because while they are fundamentally different if you liked Roger Rabbit as a kid as an adult you will love who censored Roger Rabbit oh thanks that's that's sweet uh you know I a lot of people ask because 
the the story in the book is different from the story of the movie. And a lot of people say, "Well, does that bother you?" And I and and my answer is is very simple. I wrote Roger Rabbit, who censored Roger Rabbit, to be the best book that I was capable of writing, and I wrote it so that the book would appeal to readers' imaginations. You, you have to invest something in this book. You have to bring your own imagination to it. And, and I, you know, I guide you through it, but, you know, you will be reading it and you will see what I'm, what I'm writing and what I'm talking about in your mind. Uh, the movie's a totally different thing. You know, the movie puts it all out there on the screen. And, you know, you see the movie and you, you don't have to use your imagination because it's, it's all there. Like for instance, in the book, these are these are comic book and, and cartoon characters we're talking about. So they don't actually talk in words; they talk in word balloons. So when you're talking to a tune, the tune will put up a word balloon, and you read the word balloon. And if the tune turns around while he's talking, then his word balloon turns around too, and you either have to go on the other side of him or learn to read backwards because. Uh, his word balloon will be reversed. If someone is shot with a tuned gun, he, if the gun produces a bang balloon, and you can scrape that bang balloon up off the floor. They're very brittle. They're like uh, they're like fine china plates. But you can scrape that bang balloon up off the floor, and uh, if you find the, the gun that, that committed the murder, you produce another bang balloon, and the two bang balloons will overlay one another, and they'll match if it's from the same gun. It's and, ballistic and, matching. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the whole novel is is that, and that is not easily translated to a film. They, in in early days, they really wanted to use the word balloons because that is that is so creative, it's so innovative, and they have initially tried to use the word balloons in in the movie, but they they rapidly figured out that it made it a silent movie. The two characters would talk, produce a word balloon, the audience would have to read the word balloon, then they'd go to the next scene. <laughs> it was basically a silent movie with subtitles. And so that that, uh, that fell by the wayside. But they did want to give me an homage. My, my word balloons, they wanted to give me an homage. So there was a scene where Marvin Acme was being buried, his funeral. And um, he, he was his coffin was being carried by uh, cartoon characters, and uh, midway through the procession, uh, one of the cartoon characters, Foghorn Leghorn, or somebody, starts to laugh because they're cartoon characters. And that's what they do when they're sad, and then the rest of them started to laugh. Uh, at all except for Felix the Cat, who was one of the pallbearers. And Felix the Cat was a cartoon character, a comic strip character from the, I think, 30s and 40s. And he never spoke. He was silent in all of his his cartoons and all of his comic strips. He never spoke. So, but this in this scene, he put up a word balloon that says sob. And the word balloon then turned to uh, tears and came down and got his shoulders all wet. It was just a beautiful scene. Uh, my my homage. But the movie, they didn't really know whether this movie was going to appeal to children or to adults when it was made. And the rule of thumb is that if you're going to appeal to children, the movie has to be longer than 90 minutes. And the movie, First Cut, came in at, uh, I don't know, an hour, an hour and 55, something like that. So they had to cut out a lot of scenes, and that was one of the scenes they cut. So there went my homage. That sucks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I still got Roger, Jessica, Baby Herman, Eddie Valiant, so I guess I'm gonna have to be happy with that. You know, reading the book, you almost had to figure Disney was gonna change the story. Looking at Disney's background, because the book is much darker than what Disney would have put out at the time. Hell, I think it's darker than what Disney would put out now. Yeah, and even the, the movie itself. Uh, you know, Bob, Bob Zemeckis, obviously had read the book, uh, and Steve Spielberg had read the book when it first came out, and they liked the darkness of it. And I think that the movie, although it's not as dark as the book, is still pretty dark. Oh, it has its, its moments. It's a dark movie. Um, you, you know, and, and while we're there, 
the fact that the movie was a phenomenal success. I mean, the movie thus far has, has grossed more than $1 billion. It's B, B, billion. Uh, you've got the Toontown theme park at Disneyland. Uh, Roger walks around the, the theme parks. And, uh, you know, by projection, I don't know what a movie ticket costs, but it's, it's, it's got, it's grossed a billion dollars. So let's say, let's say a half a billion people have seen it. I don't know. Maybe more in China. I have no idea, but a half a billion people have seen it. So, uh, 32 people have read the novel and that includes you, my mother and my six aunts. So most people, when they, they think of Roger Rabbit and the Toontown universe, until I started writing more novels about it, most people thought about the movie and not the book. And so when I wrote the sequel novel, which was who plugged Roger Rabbit, where we standardized on the four-piece stutter, when I wrote that novel, I had a little bit of a dilemma because most people's conception of Toontown and Roger Rabbit and Jessica was the movie version and not the book version. So in the sequel, I had to decide whether to be true to my, my first novel and in the conceits I did in my first novel or go with the Disney version. And I chose to stay with my original concept, dark booting kind of thing, although the characters changed a little bit to conform a little more to what, the way they were presented uh, in the Disney movie, although they're still a lot darker than uh, the Disney version. Uh, Jessica, Roger thinks Jessica is having an affair with Clark Gable. And, uh, it's it's still a pretty dark, dark uh, movie thing. The third one, who whacked Roger Rabbit, uh, because... People had read the first two, and I was getting recognized as the guy who created Roger Rabbit and created Toontown. And I, I could pretty much do it however I wanted. I went back full bore to uh, the darkness of the first novel, and the third novel is very brooding and very similar to the first novel. Who does she have an affair with in the third novel? Um, <laughs> you really want me to tell you? Um, hang on, wait a minute. I yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> there were so many. Um, Gary Cooper. Oh, nice. Hey, she's moving up in the world. Yeah, she goes for movie stars, you know. The, the character contrast from book to movie, you can see a lot of the same quirks from the book to the movie in that, like, okay, let's take Jessica. She's still this, like, knockout sex symbol from book mm -hmm. to movie who... Roger idolizes, and mm -hmm. you put her in the movie, now everybody idolizes. Yeah. You've seen my comments. I'm, yeah. I'm one of the everybody. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> Get in line. <laughs> like my wife knows, she's my wife, Jessica's my girlfriend. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> I gotta say, I like the book's Baby Herman better than the movie's Baby Herman. Yeah, that... Uh... You know, it's funny because of all the characters that I've written, Baby Herman is is possibly my most successful character. Uh, I based Baby Herman on characters that I read when I was when I, when I was a kid. There were a number of comic book characters that were full grown babies. Uh, they were they were like adults, but they were babies. There was a baby Louie. I can't remember. Uh, but there were a lot of them. And so I wrote Baby Herman. Uh, it's this foul-mouthed, cigar-smoking guy who's, uh, uh, I don't know, 36. And, you know, my, my, my favorite line from the book is not, uh, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. It's like, uh, I got a 36-year-old lust and a three-year-old With a three-year-old winky. <laughs> that is my that is my favorite line, and I wrote that character. And when I sent the book to my agent, my agent said, "Oh well, you can't use this character." I said, "Why not?" He says, "Well, it belongs to somebody else." I said, "No, I created it." He says, "Well, no, I'm sure I've seen this Baby Herman character somewhere else." And I I think in that context, that's my most successful character because everybody thinks that that character already existed, and that was like a Bugs Bunny character who was already existing in the uh, cartoon universe. What I liked about the original version, he's more humane. He's more uh, personable mm -hmm. than he is in the movie. Yeah. Uh, it's like, in the book, 
he's willing to help Eddie. He's willing to, you know, actually help out his pal Roger and do all this stuff. Whereas in the movie, it's very much that, well, this is what I saw, but I'm in it for myself. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and again, that's, that's the difference between books and movies. You know, in a book, you've got more time to develop the character. Uh, you can show his personality and show where he came from and show how he got to where he is. In the in the movie, uh, probably Baby Herman is in that movie. I haven't timed it, but I'm guessing less than five minutes. And so in five minutes, you have to build a character uh, that that's understandable and kind of relevant to the story. And so you kind of have to strip away anything except one trait. And that one trait in the movie is, hey, I'm all for me and, um, you know, give me my cigar and blood, you know, so. Cigar, blood, and I can't do nothing. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. I can look, but I can't touch. <laughs> well, if you're a Jessica guy, you're going to love the new book because it is. Oh, uh, I'm looking forward to it. An entire Jessica Rabbit novel and to show you, I, I do my best work when my life is in complete chaos. I always have. And I don't think my life could be any more chaotic than it is now. Because I say, right now is a good time for chaos. Yeah, I mean, I'm stuck in, I'm stuck in my uh, my condo here, and I can't go out, and I can't see my friends. And um, and I, like I told you, I, my goal when I'm writing is to do a page a day. I mean, if I do a page a day, that's great. And some days I am happy just to find the right word. You know, if I find the right word on one day, I'm happy. But now I'm consistently uh, turning out five pages a day, every day, wow. seven days a week. And uh, I'm probably two and a half years ahead of schedule on the Jessica Rabbit novel. It'll be done another month and a half. It'll nice. Yeah. So I, I am, I'm happy to say, now I've read tons of mystery novels, and usually by midway, I can kind of figure out where it's going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you got me. Well, you know, that's, that's the beautiful part about operating in Toontown. You're never going to figure out. You're never going to figure it out because uh, it, it's Toontown. And that was my one goal. I had to have, a, I, I wanted this to be a noir mystery that would only work in a world where cartoon characters were real. If you take this novel and, and translate it to a world where cartoon characters don't exist or aren't real, the whole thing falls apart. It can't, it can't happen. It's just it's, it's impossible. So that's part of it. You know, unless you're on my wavelength, unless you're, you're thinking the way my brain works, you're never going to figure it out because it's a world where cartoon characters are real. And uh, that's just uh, that's something that doesn't exist. Well, see, based on how you have it set up with the remnants, I think you call them, the real tunes, I yeah. thought I'd figured out the uh, mystery. And boy, was I wrong. Way to, th <laughs> way to throw a twist. <laughs> Well, I do I do what I can to keep my readers uh, keep my readers guessing. You know, and I think so far so far I've been pretty well. So then, moving into the movie, mm -hmm. Roger goes from roughly this almost human height heighted height as tall as a human mm -hmm. brown rabbit mm -hmm. to the short white rabbit. Yeah, um, and again, um, I. I, I wrote the book to be the book and the movie to be the movie, and I never in my wildest dreams expected that anybody would do a movie of this and that there would at one point be a physical representation of Roger. I just never imagined that. So when the movie came along, and uh, you know, Dick Williams, who was the lead animator, he sat down with me and he said, all right, you, you know, let's... We have to visualize this rabbit. We have to give this rabbit a physical presence. And Dick's, I mean, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant guy. He's won multiple Academy Awards, and he's just a brilliant guy. And he started explaining to me some of the rationale 
behind what he wanted to do and what he thought would work on screen that was going to be a change from the kind of rabbit that I had in the book. Uh, you know, he said the rabbit, the rabbit that was the size of a human being in the movie was going to be very intimidating. It was like going to be like the gorilla at the Ink and Paint Club. It was going to be too big. In order to be lovable, he had to be smaller. Uh, you know, I go for that. He uh, he said that a white rabbit was going to be easier to animate than a brown rabbit, and that was that was just a time cost savings. Uh, and you know, brown white I didn't really matter to me. I just didn't want him gray because I didn't want him a Bugs Bunny kind of rabbit. So and bugs are like uh, every other rabbit that's been on yeah. TV for the last fifty years. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, you know, Dick went through all of his ideas, and he started sketching rabbits, and, and um, I don't know, after maybe the 263rd rabbit, uh, he came up with something that looked pretty close to Roger, and um, he loved it, I loved it, um, and, the, and the rest is history, and now I, I can't envision uh, a rabbit in, in my books, the, the, that was the one thing in the second novel. The rabbit in the second novel is now the rabbit in the movie. It's the same size, the same color. Uh, and now I can't imagine Roger looking anything other than in the way he looks in the movie. Well, and they keep the uh, red overalls mm -hmm. that become a key part in the book. Yeah, the, the red overalls and the, uh, the polka up blue tie. Yeah, that, um, that are a very central part to yeah. the original story. Mm -hmm. So that was nice. And you know, I, uh, one, of the, one of the neatest things, when the movie came out, they made a life-size Roger Rabbit doll. Uh, it, it actually, it's probably, it's probably about, it's probably a little bigger than the, the Roger as he is on screen. He's probably a little bigger than that. But it has red overalls on it. You can actually take the red overalls off and, and they're big enough for me to wear. I can actually slip into these Rogers red overalls. That's crazy. Yeah, right after the movie came out, uh, my wife and I were in Hollywood. We went to a Halloween party. Uh, the movie came out in July, I think, or June, June or July. And we went to a Halloween party at the Magic Castle, which is a exclusive club for magicians in L.A. You have to be a working magician to get in. And uh, you can only go there if you're not a magician, as the guest of a magician. Uh, but we went to their Halloween party, and uh, I thought we were being so clever because my wife and I both went as Roger Rabbit, so we were like two Roger Rabbits. And uh, my wife, who was very clever at doing stuff like that, made the costumes, and they looked pretty good. When we got there, there were 12 Roger Rabbits, and some of these people actually had the costumes that they were at Disneyland, so it was just amazing. But interestingly enough, and this would be totally different today, there was not a single Jessica, not a one. I say it today, uh, it would be all Jessicas. Yeah, today, today, I would be Jessica. I mean, everybody would be Jessica. I'm dressed up uh, like Jessica. Yeah, it was kind of interesting, because Jessica took a little while to gain traction, but once Jessica gained traction, um, I would have to say that of all the characters I've ever written in my life, that Jessica is probably the one that uh, is is the most popular and is the one that uh, is most grasped the, uh, the imagination of the reading public. I mean, uh, even after, I mean, when that movie came out in 19, uh, 1988, I mean, 35, 38 years ago, and she is still one of the most popular characters. Yes, she is. Cosplay characters. I was watching, uh, Disney Plus just dropped, uh, Prop Culture on their streaming mm -hmm. service. Yeah. yeah, everybody's told me about it. I, I, I was, uh, I was supposed to be interviewed for that, but apparently they didn't have a travel budget, so, um, they couldn't come to me and, um, I didn't go to them, so uh, you know, I I haven't seen it. People have told me about it. I, I guess it's I guess it's pretty good, but uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll probably have to see it eventually. I don't have Disney Plus. I'm a Netflix guy. I say they go into kind of the you know 
co-creation of Jessica and Roger and what it takes for, you know, what it took for the animation and things. And in the course of talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the book gets mentioned for, like, a brief two seconds. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, does that ever bother you? Nah, I mean, the people who know know, and, and the people who don't know, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna convince them. And uh, you know, our TV series isn't gonna convince them. What I'm more, what I'm more disturbed about, and I, I admittedly I haven't seen it, so I can't really comment on it. But but what I'm more disturbed about it is not the fact that they didn't mention my book, but the fact that they didn't mention Dick Williams. I understand that the only mention of Dick Williams in the entire presentation is when Charlie Fleischer, who's the voice of Roger Rabbit, mentions Dick Williams. So they didn't yeah. give Dick Williams his due. And no. You know, for the movie, um, yeah, you know, I came up with the premise and the and and all the characters, but it was it was Dick Williams who really visualized them and brought them to life. And so for something like that, uh, I think mentioning him is more important than mentioning me. I so yeah, when he passed, he was touted as the creator of Roger Rabbit. <laughs> I can't believe, can't believe how many emails and phone calls I got because everybody thought that was me. Well, and then, yeah, <laughs> imagine my surprise. I'm going down the rabbit hole and I find, you know, a book by the creator of Roger Rabbit and somebody else's name. I'm like, wait, who is this? Yeah, the term creator of Roger Rabbit is a is like a broad circus tent that incorporates a lot of clowns. I mean, there are a lot of people. Well, no, there aren't really. I, I think I think Dick Williams uh, could lay claim to being the creator of Roger Rabbit because he is the one who actually visualized Roger Rabbit for the screen. I am the, I can take claim to Roger Rabbit because I came up with the whole premise and all the characters. I, I think Steve Spielberg and, and Bob Zemeckis. Uh, they can lay claim to it too, because without them, that movie never would have happened. Um, and, and on a corporate level, uh, you know, Michael Eisner, um, Jeff Katzenberg, without without the corporate guys who really got behind it and kept approving it, even as the budget went up and up and up and up, I think they can lay claim to being the you know, quote creators of Roger Rabbit, certainly the facilitators of Roger Rabbit. As a fan of Who Framed Roger Rabbit and now Who Censored Roger Rabbit and looking forward to picking up the other novels. Uh, watching that episode, I felt jilted, mm. you know, because it just, it, it seemed like so, like they just glassed over everything and like cherry-picked who they were going to talk to. Well, as I say, they 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 were going to talk to me. Uh, they I interviewed the, those people for a couple of hours by phone, and uh, they were going to interview me. But it was a budgetary thing. They had no travel budget. They couldn't come to me. I, I'm in Boston, and I wasn't going to go to them. So that and I've heard that complaint from other people who were involved in the film that they didn't interview enough people. The people they interviewed. Sometimes weren't the right ones. I mean, they got Kathleen, um, you know, they got Charlie. So, and, and the fans seem happy with it. I, 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 I can't complain. Uh, that, that's good. I mean, at the end of the day, as long as you're happy with how your original work transformed and has brought laughter and memories globally, yeah. You know, some people have the honor to say, "Hey, my work." brought, you know, smiles to people in my county and my state. Yeah. Yeah. Your your characters, the ones that you just sat down and wrote about, with the help of everybody involved at Disney, have become global phenomenons. Iconic characters. And uh, of, of all the things that I... I'm amazed by. Uh, I am amazed that exactly as you say, the characters that I created have become cultural, popular cultural icons, and that uh, you know when I die, if if the virus gets me, on my tombstone is going to be written Gary K. Wolf. He created Roger Rabbit, and uh, you know that's enough for me. That's that's enough. And it's something um, that can't, no one can take it away from you. No, never. 
and nobody could ever take that away. This has been probably one of the most exciting interviews I've done. And I mean, I, I interview a lot of people. <laughs> I, I need to think of who else you're interviewing. No, like I mean, your local trash man or no, the I mean, I, like, <laughs> If uh, I'm on, the on most exciting. Because, <laughs> oh, you know, okay. I, I, I interview, oh, you know, you I, I do, you know, I interview a lot of voice actors, things like that, mm. that, you know, I get really, you know, I, I, I geek out a lot. But, yeah. Like I said, Roger Rabbit has been huge in my life. Yeah, you know, I watched it as a little kid, and I remember first time I was watching it as an adult. I called my mom and I asked her, "I said, what in the hell were you thinking?" <laughs> and she goes, "What do you mean?" I said, "This is not a children's movie. You should not have let yeah. me watch this." You know, and she uh, the response I got back was, "You didn't get the jokes. It's fine." <laughs> so yeah, the, the the movie had stuff for everybody, mm-hmm. and you can. My kids love the movie. Well, it was it was multiple layered. There there was stuff in there that kids thought was hilarious. The cartoon, the cartoon action, and all that kind of stuff. Kids thought that was hilarious. But there was a subtext that adults got that the kids didn't. And I think that's what made it such a successful movie that it, it operated on multiple levels. So, you know, as I say, we didn't know whether this was going to be a kids movie. Or an adult movie, but it turns out it's the perfect kid adult movie because um, everybody gets something out of it. For an example, the the booby trap. <laughs> you know, most kids aren't going to get why that's funny. It's oh, he got his hand stuck in a trap. But no, it was a booby trap. You know, it's a, that's a perfect example because kids are going to laugh at one thing, and adults are going to laugh at something entirely else. It's a, it's a very large booby trap. <laughs> yeah, well, it has to be. Uh, Big movies, I guess. So, we know that you have the, I, I don't know what it's called, but the tale of Jessica Rabbit coming out uh, in the near future. It's called Jessica Rabbit. It's called Jessica Rabbit. And, um, yeah, I've been working on it. I actually, I've been working on it for probably two years. And, um, I was anticipating that I was going to have another two years worth of work on it. Uh, but because of the quarantine thing and being in and not having anything else to abuse myself, I'm way ahead of schedule on it. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, um, I don't know, you know, it'll be done. It'll be done, I'm guessing, in three to four months. Uh, the publisher's interested. And, you know, I mean, who wouldn't want to bring out a Jessica Rabbit novel? Uh, but I am not so sure that I want to publish it uh, when there are no bookstores open. Um, because that's, the, you know, that's the kiss of death. I, you know, you publish it and nobody's going to be able to buy it except on Amazon. And I don't like that. So I don't know when it will actually come out, but it will be finished shortly. And, you know, if anybody, I mean, you're my biggest fan and my biggest PR guy, but if anybody wants to read my stuff, uh, they can go to my website, www.garywolf.com, and uh, I have all of my Roger Rabbit books there in in affordable paperback uh, paperback editions, like 15 bucks a piece, I think, something like that. Uh, they can buy the, um, uh, the audio book of who censored Roger Rabbit from, uh, I can't remember the company that brought it out. It wasn't Audible, but it was somebody else. It's a really, really good one. And I was happy to see that come out because in the old days, uh, when somebody wanted the audio version, they would they would send me like 20 bucks and I would call them up and read, read them the book on the phone. So this actually saves me a lot of time uh, this way. But, you know, www.garywolf.com, you can get all my stuff, including my early science fiction stuff. and the Road to Toontown, which is uh, all my early science fiction short stories. Well, folks, you know where to find him, and I will make sure you know where to find him, because like I said, all of those links will be posted in the episode description, and will be shared numerous times as the episode is posted. And you can find me over on Twitter, at the handle Moose Media Inc., your home for all Moose Media needs, Gary. I just want to thank you for coming on and hey, it was my pleasure talking to you today. Me, gives me something to do in this uh, bleak, dystopian world we're living in now. <laughs> okay.
I say, yeah, Thanks a lot. it's the perfect time to write dystopian futures. Absolutely. Thanks a bunch. And folks, there's a lot of good podcasts out there, and unless you heard it here, it's probably just a load of bull spit. Until next time, take her easy. Ooh-wee, that sure was some bull spit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you need some help. Be sure to tune in next time.